Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise or in this way. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So the believers rest. Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we love you. We are grateful for the conclusion of another day. It's nice to be able to finish it in fellowship with people of like mindedness and like precious faith. Help us, O oh God, as we teach. Give us all ears to hear. We're so grateful that our lives are situated on the rock. And Lord, we want to grow in grace and in knowledge more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a beautiful book, and I have enjoyed going through this as we have looked at how wonderful Christ is in comparison with so many other figures that are mentioned in the preceding chapters. What we're dealing with now is almost like an allegory or some kind of typology. It's dealing with the journey of the Israelites as they're trying to make their way from Egypt going into the promised land. And the Lord told us at the end of chapter 3 the reason they didn't make it into the promised land was because of unbelief. So there are three things that come into play in this chapter. That is the promised land, the Sabbath day, and then also heaven. Each of those are considered to be some kind of rest. Remember the scripture says that blessed are those that die in the Lord. You know. Then it goes on to tell us in the same book how that a person ceases from their labors. So there's a rest that all of us want to be able to enjoy. And there's a reason God gave us six days to work and then a day to have off. And it's important to understand that. But what we must do is learn from the examples of the children of Israel. Now, rest is a form of peace. It's a condition of ease, a state of tranquility. All of us like those kinds of things because we don't like stress. We don't like to be overburdened with work. And, and if we're just being pushed down with all kinds of problems and things like that, it's a very difficult life to live. And the children of Israel dealt with themselves in that manner for four decades. Unbelief, anxiety, doubts, and all kinds of other things. This is why in verse 1 of chapter 4, then, it says, Let us therefore fear, which means walk reverently and be in a, a state of, uh, of humility and somewhat you know, trembling at, at, at what is taking place. In the preceding verses, he said, All of them could not enter in because of unbelief. So if an entire generation of people died and did not make it into the promised land because of their unbelief, he said, let's be very careful about how we tread and walk, lest we fall into the same kind of situation that they fell into. What is difficult, I think, is that if you were to ask any of the children of Israel in ancient times that were in the wilderness, did they believe God? Most of them probably would have said yes. They had no idea that God saw their 
their unbelief as something that they didn't see it as. They, they thought they were people walking with God and in a covenant with God, and I'm sure they thought they had some kind of faith in God, but yet the scripture is very plain here. We should be very careful because there is a promise out there, and a promise is always connected with the future. If God promises to do something, that means it has not occurred yet. We call it hope. Hope, we say, is faith. It's a belief, but it is oriented towards tomorrow or oriented towards the future time because it hadn't occurred yet. So we hope to go to heaven because we're not in heaven right now. But even if God looks at us and sees us as believers, then the next question is, does he see our lifestyles as one of faith? That's the, that's the thing. Uh, this, this was a, an amazing thing to me that two people out of who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people made it into the promised land. And this is why he said, be very careful, lest we come short of entering into that particular rest that he has for us. Now, our rest is different because we're not looking for a particular piece of land. We're not looking for real estate. The scripture says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So our rest is, is spiritual in the sense that Christ has become our prince of peace. He's become the one that we enjoy in this world, and we'll certainly enjoy him for all of eternity. But we don't want to miss out on what he has provided for us, and he has given us the ability to walk in peace even in the midst of a storm. And that's why Jesus was able to go to sleep on a ship, and everything was falling apart up here, and the wind was howling and blowing, and the water was invading the boat and the disciples were doing everything they could to save themselves. And that's what we typically do when we're taking on water. And when we're in the middle of a storm, we do everything we can to try to fix it. And, and, and very often the, the last resort is, oh, oh, yeah, Jesus is on board. Let's go talk to him. And it's when we talk to him that he's able to speak a word to the winds and to the waters and everything finally settles down because it doesn't always settle down when when we do all the things that we're doing. So verse two then says, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached to them was not mixed with faith. That means that the word of God was not united with them. They heard it, but they didn't really apply it to the point of believing. So here were people who believed they were on their way to the promised land, but had no idea that they were in a state of unbelief. Self-deception. And self-deception can produce pride. Pride can cause us to think better of ourselves than we should. And then other people recognize the hypocrisy of our ways, and they, they see that it's not, it's not a good thing. A Bible college student one time was hitchhiking to where he needed to get to, and he was alongside a road man, stopped, pulled up, picked him up. He got in the vehicle, and they drove a little ways, and the, the driver, he... He asked the young man as he was getting ready to light up a cigarette, he said, do you, do you smoke? The young man said, no. He said, if God wanted me to smoke, he'd have gave me a smokestack instead of a head. That's what the hitchhiker said to the driver. So the driver didn't say too much. He just went on the lit up. They drove a little way, several miles, going out through the country and everything like that. And, and after a little ways, then the car just abruptly came to a stop. He told the young man to get out. He said, get out, out here? How, how am I going to get to where I'm going? He said, well, if God wanted you to travel, he would gave you wheels instead of feet. 
Well, so, sometimes we we can we can be a little bit self righteous <laughs> and end up end up in trouble in a place we don't need to be. Well, if the gospel was preached to them, and how was it preached to them? It was preached to them in the sense that God wanted them to be obedient, and they heard the, the message that came from Moses. Nevertheless, they refused to abide by Moses' words. The gospel has come to us, so what are we to do with the gospel? We're to apply it and believe it. So Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 1. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we let them slip. So hold on to what you have learned, the truths that have come to you. Make sure that you embrace them, but you keep a tight grip on them. And he says in verse 2 of Hebrews 4 again, the word was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. So there's a, a, a mixture here that's important. You can put all the ingredients that you think are necessary to put in a cake. But there is one ingredient that's necessary to get that cake to come up. But if you forget to put in some yeast, it's not going to look like too much of anything. And if we do not mix with the word of God, faith, then it's not going to produce the very things that God wants it to produce. Scripture says faith without works is dead. All of us live our lives according to what we believe. Whenever you hear someone say, well, I don't see it that way. That's just another way of saying I don't believe it. And so our lifestyle corresponds to what we believe exactly. But we have to mix what we believe with faith or it will not produce the results that, that we desire. Verse 3 then says, we which have believed do enter into rest. And that's true. We, we have a place that awaits us and it is true, like the hymn says, I have a mansion just over the hilltop or hillside. Well, rest for us is twofold as Christians. We have the rest we have in Christ and we have the rest that we'll receive one day when we make it to, to heaven. But the Lord swore in verse 3 they would not enter in. And I'm not sure why in the world, in the KJV, they says, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest because the exact same Greek wording that's here in verse 3 is also in chapter 3 verse 11 and it's quoting Psalm 95 so it very plainly should say as I have sworn in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest and then the next clause there at the end of verse 3 that, that reads right along with verse 4 although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. See, that's the Sabbath. He spake in a certain place of the seventh day. So God made everything in six days. He rested on the seventh day. Do you realize God is still resting? He's still in his Sabbath? It's not like he made the world, wound it up, and then after about 2,000 years, then pretty soon everything fell apart. He had to start recreating things again. He is still in his position of rest, and that's what the Sabbath was given for. It is given so that man can partake of the rest that God himself enjoys. So every week, there's one day that's supposed to be the Sabbath. So 52 Sabbaths in a year, and then, of course, we've got leap years and all of that. So if you go over a 10-year period, you've got 1,000 and something. I mean, I myself, I mean, over 2,000 Sabbaths I've lived and enjoyed, see, 
Well, if the Sabbath day was important to God, why is it less important to us today? Uh, let's, let's talk about worship days and let's talk about labor. The children of Israel had cattle and chickens and who knows what else they had. But what did they do on the Sabbath day? Had to rest. Acts chapter 1 tells us that they could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day. Most of you that are older certainly can remember the time when on the first day of the week, which is Sunday for us, that's the believers, Christians, Sabbath. But for the Jewish people, Friday night to Saturday night. But you can still remember when on Sunday, nothing was open. That's a big shopping day today. I mean, goodness, if nothing was open today, we might actually have to cook at home. And wouldn't be able to go and enjoy our smothered pork chops somewhere. You understand that? I mean, goodness. Okay, so uh, most of your stores were closed. My grandmother, she didn't even cook on Sunday. She made everything up on Saturday. About the only thing she might do on Sunday, she'd warm something up when everybody came in. But nobody was going in there cooking anything on Sunday. That was just her, her belief. Well, the Jews had this principle, the Christians had this principle, even in ancient Rome when they didn't believe that Sunday was the Lord's day because Romans didn't accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. For the believers, they still gathered on that particular day to read the scriptures, to sing songs, and to commemorate our Savior's resurrection from, from the dead. So for us then, this day is important. Now, we don't make so much of Sunday that we want to get into condemnation and bondage. Paul said in the book of Romans, he said, one, day is, one man esteems one day, another person esteems another day. When I lived in the Middle East, we went to church on Friday morning. Yeah, Saudi Arabia, every Friday morning. When I lived in Israel, we went to church every Saturday morning. And of course, here in America, we fellowship on Sunday morning. Then Sunday night, then I'm teaching Monday night, and Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. So it seems like I'm in, I'm in church quite often. It's not about the day, it's about the person. That's what I want you to, to understand. The, the believer's rest in honoring the Sabbath of the Lord is very simple. There should be a period in your life where you pull aside just to spend time with God. Come apart and rest a while. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Even Jesus did that with his disciples. The verse here says that in verse five, and in this place again, he quotes that verse. If they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth. He's saying that there is a rest that remains. Somebody's got to enter into this. Now he's still making it a future thing, even for the Hebrew readers. So when Psalm 95 11 says there's a rest that remains, Obviously, there's something in the future because the children of Israel that were in the wilderness have passed away. The generation that was in the promised land with Joshua has passed away. But there's still something up ahead that God is pointing to. There's a spiritual significance to the fact that there's a rest provided for us. It's an eternal Sabbath rest where the weary can rest from all of their weekday toil. It's going to be an eternal thing in the presence of of the Lord. Scripture says here in verse number six that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached did not enter in because of unbelief. So we run into that again. What keeps us from enjoying the rest and peace of God today? Unbelief. 
What will keep a person from enjoying the rest and peace of God in the future? Unbelief. The man or woman that says, I don't believe in God. I don't trust God. I don't believe his word is true. They, they won't enter into what we're talking about at all. There was a, uh, you know, just, just talking about this rest thing. As a man one time challenged a, a, another man to an all-day contest of chopping wood. You know, so this one man, he just starts off chopping, and, I mean, he's working hard. He never even bothered to, to stop too many times. He took one little lunch break, and that was it. He's right back out there chopping. But the man he challenged, it seemed like he stopped every little bit of while and sat down, had a nice long lunch break. At the end of the day, the man who was challenging the other one was annoyed by the fact that the other man had more wood chopped. And the, 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 the guy who, who had challenged him hadn't had as much wood as he wanted to, and he couldn't understand why it was. He said, I've been looking at you half the day. It looked like you've been sitting down. But the man explained to him, he said, each time I sat down, you didn't notice I was sharpening my axe. So if you make the best use of your time, then it's not a matter of working hard, it's working smarter. Rest is a very important thing. That many people don't take the time to do it, but they should. Because it's, it's a whole lot easier to, to enjoy life if you rest in the presence of God and enjoy the presence of God than it is if you're just all bound up tight and just pressured on every side. Now, some people have a hard time relaxing. I, I've, I've seen that with, uh, with people that, that, that work. And I, I remember, and I probably told you this before, years and years ago, I had a, a farmer one time. He, 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 he married and, and some folks in, in another town, that they wanted to, the wife wanted to be able to go on vacation, but the farmer wasn't that kind of a guy. He just felt like, you know, he ought to work 26 hours a day. That's just, just it works out better. So you can't get anything done if you're not working. Well, I had to tactfully explain to you. Pretty soon, all you're going to have is a tractor because you're not going to have a wife here pretty soon. And, and you, you've got to decide what, what, what's more important. I know you can pour gas in that thing and ride all night long, but unless you want to come home to a lonely house, then you're going to have to, you're going to, have to choose what, what it is that you want to do. What was the issue? Didn't know how to rest. Didn't grow up traveling. Didn't grow up doing anything with family anything like that. So when it comes to the, the, the Christian thing, how do I learn to enjoy what I have? That's what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath is supposed to be the queen of all the days of the week. That is the one day where we say this is all about you, Lord, and we're going to enjoy you. Now, we're not Orthodox Jews in here, but Orthodox Jews go through all kinds of rituals every Friday evening, aside from shutting down all their businesses, they're lighting all kinds of candles and all of that, ushering in the Sabbath day and singing all kinds of songs and things like that. But that really is what Sunday is supposed to be for us to the Christians. You know what Sunday is today? It's football day, baseball day, it's volleyball day. And, and we, we, we should have some time uh, to just rest in the presence of the Lord and enjoy him and, and to be able to be grateful to what he's given to us. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. Okay, look here at verse number seven. Again, he limiteth a certain day. We know what that day is. It's the Sabbath. And he says in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. How many times are we going to run into that verse 
in these chapters. The hearts become hardened when we begin to do things over and over again that we should not do. Maybe, let's go to 2 Chronicles. Maybe I should show you this. Let's go over 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament. Let me make sure I am where I need to be. 2 Chronicles 36, yes. 2 Chronicles 36. And I want to show you why the Babylonian captivity took place. This is an amazing thing. God sent all of these prophets to Israel to tell them to change what they were doing, but they did not do this. So 2 Chronicles 36, look at verse number 15. The Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, that's often, and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now what that means is, in the Old Testament, whenever God sends prophets to prophesy to his people, even though you read those prophecies, and to you it may seem like those are some pretty fairly harsh things they're saying, as far as God is concerned, that's him showing compassion. Because he's telling them, turn from your ways. Go in a different direction. That's a manifestation of the compassion of God. Look at verse 16. Here's what Israel did. They mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets. That's three different things. Have you ever seen people mock Christians or preachers today? Oh, yeah. Just watch a few sitcoms. You'll see that. Despise his words undoubtedly. His words are despised. I've seen political rallies where they boo God just because his name is, is mentioned in certain places. Misused his prophets. They physically harmed him until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Of course, there's no remedy if God gets upset. Well, let's come down a little further. Look, uh, verse 17 tells us the Chaldeans or the Babylonians came. Verse 18 says the vessels of the house of God, great and small, were essentially taken to Babylon. Verse 19, they burnt down the house of the Lord and tore down the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 20, them that escaped from the sword, he carried to Babylon. They became servants or slaves there. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her what? Sabbaths. See, the Lord told the children of Israel every seven years is a Sabbath, Sabbath year. And in that seventh year, you're to plant none of the fields. Let the land rest. Sabbath was very important to God. And it says, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. So that's 70 years. From the time that they came into the promised land up until this point, about 490 or so. So every seven years, it gives you 70. So God put them in Babylon for 70 years to fulfill all of the Sabbath years that they should have let the land rest. Now, the point I'm trying to emphasize as we come back over here to Hebrews 4 is that Sabbath is important. Rest is important. Christ has become our Sabbath rest, and the Lord wants us to enjoy him, to honor him, to put him first. He should be the primary thing in our life. Scripture says, seek ye first the, the kingdom, see, and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. God should be number one. Well, then verse number eight says, if Jesus, this, this, even though it says Jesus, this is talking about Joshua, because Joshua and Jesus are the same 
uh, name, and this is talking about Joshua bringing them out, uh, taking them in, I should say, into the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, now the reason it says if Joshua or Jesus had given them rest is because it didn't occur. It didn't occur. When, when Joshua went into the promised land, you remember what he did. He was fighting and at war. He had to defeat 31 kings that we have a record of in Joshua. If he would have given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Even Joshua understood that there's something better than even what we have right now with his real estate. There is a rest that's coming. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So the Lord Jesus is preparing a place for us that where he is, we may be with him also. The, the rest of God is absolutely essential to our Christian character. In, in fact, if, if I didn't believe in heaven, I don't know what would be the point of all of this. Think about it. Our, our lifestyles, the scripture says 70 to 80 years, average lifespan. Person stronger, live a little bit longer. But when you consider a human lifespan in comparison with all of eternity, I mean, that's uncreated existence, unending existence. My life and your life is just a, it's less than a blip on the screen. It is. It, all the toil, all the labors, all the trials, all the tests, all the tribulations that we pass through now here. It's absolutely minuscule when you compare it with the billions of years you're going to have in the presence of God. That's, that's what this is, is all about. There remains, therefore, rest. So on my worst day, you know, you, you, you ever had one of them days where it just seems like if it could go wrong, it does go wrong. And then after everything has go wrong, gone wrong, then you, you realize there's still a few more things that are still going wrong. Yeah, it's just, it's just, just not a bad, uh, a bad day. But it's not a good day. But what happens if, if that bad day turns into a bad week? You ever had a bad week? Oh, my. Yes. Bad week. <clears throat> but what if, what if a bad week turns into a bad month? You've probably all seen some of them, too. You know, just, just one of those where he just says, I'll be so glad to get out of the month of July, just so I can just wave goodbye. Then, then you go through not a bad month, but a bad year. I've asked people that have been married like 40 and 50 years sometimes. I said, what, what, was the, what were the toughest years of your marriage? Oh, first, first 15. Yeah, first 15. Yeah, ask somebody who's been married 10 years. What was the toughest period of your, your marriage? Oh, the first year. There's always a period that's difficult. And it's, it's that period that is, is, is producing so much sadness and sorrow and grief and everything, and you wish it would disappear. But, you know, eventually it does go away. And, and the reason it goes away is the same reason we have this thing moving around on this axis like it does. It's because the seasons change. That's just the way it is. Seasons change. Unfortunately, some of our seasons seem to last longer than others. Uh, Tiff and I have passed through periods where I thought, goodness, w will we ever keep any money in our pocket? You know, this seems like something breaks. Got to give to this, got to give to that, got to do this, got to do that. And, and you'll pass through another one where it's like, well, will I, will I be able to go a year and, and, and not see a doctor? See, it's always something. Always something. 
So on the other end of all of this is what he says in verse 9. There remains a rest to the people of God. And if you're a person of God and I'm a person of God, we can expect, hopefully, that we're going to be with the Lord in eternity. That's a beautiful thing to think of. It may not make you feel good right now. You know, but I mean, if your car's broke down along the side of the road and it's hot, you know, you may not feel good right now. However, it's going to be nice to know one day your car's not going to break down. And you're not going to have to worry about that. But verse 10 says, he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Okay, who entered into his rest? Christ did. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. Finished work of Christ has been taken care of. He doesn't have anything else he needs to do. The same way God ceased from his labor after six days. He did it all in six days and on the seventh day he rested. He's been doing that ever since. And that's what he's been saying to every generation ever since. Look, the Sabbath day of every week is designed to give you an opportunity to enjoy what I enjoy. Yeah. Take this time and rest. That's what he's saying. Well, I've got all kinds of things I need to get done. I know the Israelites did too. They, they did too. Uh, I understand we've got people that work in hospitals and we've got folks that uh, do police stuff and, and, and people just have to work. I understand that. I'm not trying to get in, into a, a bad way with them. I'm just saying when the opportunity is there and the Lord has given us that we do need to enjoy this because it's a, it's a reminder of the, of the presence of God. So verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. How is it that somebody can fall away or move into unbelief as they did? It's because they refuse to obey God's word. And disobedience produces a hard heart. A hard heart leads us into apostasy. We fall further and further away from God. That's what apostasy means. Apostasy means to stand away from truth. That's all it is. Stand away from truth. Here's where truth is. At one time you embraced it. You said, Lord, I love you. I'm so happy to have you. Everything about you I enjoy. Then pretty soon a few things happen in your life. And then you move further and further away from the truth. Then pretty soon, truth is more than an arm span away. Then pretty soon, it's further and further away. And then before you know it, what little bit of belief you do have, it dissipates. And now you're doing religious things and you don't even believe in God anymore. And there are a whole lot of people go to church every week and do not believe in God. I told you that time about being in an airport in California, that mean the ex-monk got into it, you know, in the airport. He... Man heard, saw me in line getting a ticket. He said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, it's out here preaching a revival. He said, oh, that, that sounds interesting, revival. He said, what, what, uh, what church were you at? I told him what church. He said, well, you know, what, what kind of church are you part of? And, you know, he knew I told him I was a pastor. He said, well, what kind of church do you pastor and what kind of message do you preach? Well, you know, you, you talk to people. Everybody don't, un don't understand different denominations, but they know the names of people. I'll just start thinking about some popular people name. I said, you ever heard of, um, said, you ever heard of uh, Billy Graham? He said, yeah. I said, well, I, I, I believe the gospel that he preached, but I said, I'm not quite like him. I said, you ever heard of Oral Roberts? He said, yeah. He said, well, I said, I, I believe some of the things he believes about healing and all that, but I said, I'm not quite like him. I said, have you ever heard, ever heard Jimmy Swaggart? 
He said, oh, yeah, I heard him. I said, yeah, I said, now nah, I'm, I'm right down the line with him. Because at that time, that's where, you know, just, I just come from that church. I said, so that is kind of what I'm aligned to. And so then I got my ticket and everything. I went and sat down, got all checked in and everything, just sitting there minding my own business, doing like you folks do when you're in the airport. You don't want to be bothered. You just stick your nose in a book and you just start reading. And, and he comes and sits down, and you know, you know how Californian folks are. You know, they, they, like, they like to talk. If he, if he was from California, wherever he was from, he says to me, now, all this preaching you're doing, are you trying to tell me that... Uh, you believe there's only one way to heaven? I said, well, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. There's no other name given among men under the heaven whereby we must be saved. So he, he said, wait a minute now. <laughs> he said, surely, and he's getting louder. He said, surely you're not trying to tell me that you believe that people that don't believe in Jesus are not going to go to heaven and they'll go to hell. And even these people in the airport, he's getting loud. These people in the airport, if they don't believe, even they're going to be lost and go to hell. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not going to be outdone. I can shout too, you know. I, I raised my voice just like he did. I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in the airport or not is going to hell. I said, nothing I can do about that. That's what the book said. Well, by now, he, he was mad and upset. He did give me his, his, uh, his address, and I mailed him some CDs. Never did hear from him, though. He, he, he told me he was a former monk that now was, I think, now it's coming back to me. He was down, I think, living in Arizona or somewhere like that. And he told me he was so happy that in his church now, they had just hired a new uh, piano player that was an atheist. That's what he said. Because he said the pastor was a universalist, just believed in everything. And he said he didn't believe in anything, but the piano player was an atheist. And he said they sang, they sang church songs every time they got together. Now, 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 here's a good example of a person who will tell you they don't believe in a heaven or a hell or something like that, but will live their life in such a way as to conceive in their mind that just in case there is a heaven, I want to do enough good stuff so that I can gain entrance. Here's what Paul says here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of their unbelief. You have to be careful because some people honestly believe they're on the path to meeting God and they have no idea their feet aren't even on the road that leads to where God is. Yeah, self-deception is a, it's a terrible thing. So to confirm all of this, to, to deal with unbelief, because unbelief is a heart issue. Yep, it's a heart issue. Paul comes along in verse 12 and he says, now, the word of God is alive and it's powerful. He gives the illustration of it being like a two edged sword because the word of God, it condemns as well as saves. Yeah, the lips that say at, at the at the gate, the lips that say enter thou into the the joy of the Lord are the same lips that also say depart from me, you worker of iniquity. The word of God sharper than any two edged sword. And when it goes into dividing the soul, spirit, joints, marrow and, and speaking of it as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, it's just saying there's no aspect of your life, no crevice or corner in your heart, the deepest inner recesses of your being, the word of God is able to see exactly what you're thinking and God knows what you believe and what you understand. 
See, I, I can fool you, but I can't fool him. And you could fool me, but you can't fool him. That's, that's why prayer is such a wonderful thing. We can get up in front of one another and we can parade our, our, our vocabulary and our ability to, to act haughty and, and act like we know God and everything like that. But the bottom line is God looks down in that heart and he sees what's there. Yeah. He sees what really is, is going on. He sees the face. And, and what he's looking for, as I always say, is the, the reflection of his son, Jesus' face in our hearts. That's the only thing that pleases him. Yeah. So the, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. <clears throat> I had a conversation one time with someone, and they said, Daryl, has there ever been a time in your Christian life where you have doubted the existence of God? And I had to really think about that, and I can't say that I ever have. But I know I've met people who say they've struggled with, with things like that. I said, no, I, said, I don't think I've ever wondered if there is a God. I said, I've seen too much in my own life to, to doubt that. I said, there, there are too many things that have happened in my life that there's no way they could be coincidences, the way he's led me and guided me and things like that. I said, I can tell you where the Lord, I'm sure, has seen unbelief in my heart. And I said, that's in, in moments where I've been expecting deliverance or provision for something. And he probably... I'm sure he saw down in there where I was like, oh, my, is, is this really going to work out? And, and the word of God is what is able to, to bring that to light, you see, because any of us can put on a pretty good face. Oh, yes, man of God, you just stand on the word and believe God's word, confess the word and trust God's word. Make sure you pay your tithes and offers. Everything's going to work out. And then you do all those things and everything doesn't work out. Then what do you do? You just keep believing the book. That's all. If, if, if the book says to do it, do it. Do it. And, and, and we don't live our lives according to our emotions. Emotions have no intelligence. You live your lives according to what you believe. That's, that's the most important thing that, that we, can, we can see here. Verse 13 says, there's no creature that is not manifest in his sight. There's nothing hidden from God. He's made everything. Genesis 1 tells us that he made the heavens and the earth, and then he made each one of us. So there's no sense in us trying to hide our true feelings from God. He knows how you feel anyhow. Mm -hmm. So just talk to him like David did and like Solomon did. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Oh, my you know what that means? That means that he sees things I don't want you to see about me. And he sees things about you that you don't want me to see. And if God was ever doing to us like he did to the children of Israel when he brought the Babylonians, if the Lord were ever to just pull back the curtain on some of our lives, oh, my word, I'd be saying, Lord, of all the churches, on the planet, why in the world did they have to fall into here? See, I mean, just, I mean, a bunch of them out there, Lord. And then you'd, you'd be saying the same thing about me. You'd be saying, Lord, of all the preachers you could have sent to Nebraska, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel by sending him, you know. It's, it's pretty bad. But, folks, I'm telling you, this, this is the kind of thing that help, helps us to, to, to see that if we're going to enter into the rest of God, we've got to cease from our own labors and rest in what he has done for us. 
Because if I have to work my way into heaven and you have to work your way into heaven, we're not going to get there, folks. We're just not going to get there. We can't do enough good works to satisfy God that way. So we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, how he saved us by his atoning death, the blood that was shed that cleansed us of all of our iniquities. And faith in that blood makes it possible now for us to appreciate him. Look at verse 14. We have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens. He was here on the earth. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. See, notice the changes of the the images we're using here. We we're dealing with the word of God. We're dealing with uh, arrest, the spiritual home. Now we're dealing with the high priest, the son of God, who's made mediation for us and our sins. And verse 14 says we don't have the kind of high priest that cannot be touched. I'm going to stop right there, then deal with the other touched. Because in the Old Testament, if you were a priest, there were certain kinds of people you couldn't touch. You couldn't touch a leper. You couldn't touch someone that was dead. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan is so powerful. All the people walked by the person laying in the ditch. They didn't know what kind of condition he was in. They just knew if they went and got too close to him, they would defile themselves by getting involved with him. The scripture says we don't have that kind of high priest that cannot be touched. He desires to to be sought and he desires to reach out and touch us in the midst of all of our infirmities and weaknesses on your sickest day the lord wants to embrace you and he wants you to embrace him by faith it says in all points he was tempted as we are yet he was without sin that's not to say that every moment of your life when you've been tempted he went through the exact same thing he wasn't married physically he didn't have children when he was here, but that is to say that in, in all, in every complete sense, he knows what temptation is. He made it, made it through it. He survived it. And that's why you now are able to follow Paul's teaching that says no temptation has come to you, but such as is normal or common to everybody. But with every temptation, God makes a way of escape. There is an exit sign if you want to flee. But if you don't want to run, you can yield. And you can sin. And the scripture says a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. So if you do sin, just realize you don't have to sit there in condemnation and feel so bad and so bad and so bad. And let the devil just whip you from pillar to post. All you got to do is just say, Father, I'm an idiot. Please forgive me. Just forgive me, God. And just let me just start this journey all over again. And he does it. Mm -hmm. He does it. Okay, now you don't have to say I'm an idiot. He knows it, but you don't have to say it. But he knows it, I'm just saying. <clears throat> okay. In all points tempted, but he was without sin. See, we can't say that. We, we cannot say, I want to say that, but we can't, we can't say that. I'm not saying <clears throat> that you can't go 30 seconds without sinning. And if you can go 30 seconds, you'll probably make it a minute. You can go a minute, you probably can make it two. If you can make it two minutes, you probably can go four, and you can probably push it and push it and push it and push it, and God only knows how far you can actually go. But I do know this, at some point, uh, with that flesh body that you have and this flesh body that I have, we're going to need the blood of Jesus again. Yeah. I've only met a handful of people in my life that seem to me to be without sin. I lucked out. I married one, but... There's only a few, folks. I'm telling you, there's only a few. There's only a few. 
Because I've, I've listened to prayer requests in different churches before, and, and, and some of the prayer requests people have for their spouses, I say, no, I know he's not married to somebody without sin. And she's not married to somebody without sin. And I know those kids are without sin by the, by the prayer request. But, but every now and then you can get your, your focus back on Jesus, and it's like, oh, my, it's nice to have somebody who never lets you down. Yeah. He's got a song in his heart that he wants, in your heart and in mine. And verse 16 says, because of all of that that we know about our Savior, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So if you're in need tonight, you don't have to call me at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask me to pray with you. You can go straight to the throne of grace. And if you're unable to find compassion from your closest friends or family, the Bible says from him you may obtain mercy. Yeah, a lot of people just don't understand us. And, 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 and there are people who cannot sympathize with your pain because they haven't experienced it. They just don't understand it. And even as a pastor, when I'm dealing with people who have lost loved ones and, uh, <clears throat> you know, bad things happen, I don't usually sit down with folks in the midst of their tears and say, you know, I understand what you're going through. Not a lot of wisdom there. But what I do let people know is there is someone who understands, and that's Christ. And the scripture says he's the one that heals and mends our broken hearts. Now, what I can do is I can do like, like Job's friends did. I can just come and just sit with people. And don't say anything. Sometimes your presence means everything. You don't have to say anything to anybody. Just be there. Just them knowing you're in the house or knowing you're available means everything in the world. Something bad happens to somebody. You drive to where they are. You may end up not being able to spend as much time with them as you want, but just them knowing you're available. Sometimes it means a whole lot. And that's what we have to take advantage of with Christ. He's a high priest who's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He's saying, look, don't just go through that all by yourself. Let me go through this with you. Let me hug you. Let me love you. Let me bless you. Let me show compassion when you're weeping and crying. Let me put my arm around you. And you'll find that you'll make it through this a whole lot easier. Because there's some things God can do that a spouse can't do, a child can't do, a best friend can't do. It's just only something God is able to do. Amen? See, that's what rest is all about, just giving it to him. And if we do that, we can expect good things. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you have provided for us the rest that is available in your son. It's a beautiful way to conclude a chapter that we have, Lord, to think about Christ and how he has sat down at the right hand, the works of Christ were finished on the cross, Lord, and we know that he died for us. Thank you for the victory that we have. He causes us to, us to triumph in all things. And because of that, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And God, we appreciate the fact that we've been redeemed. Flawed, imperfect, but yet redeemed. We're still saints, saved by the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you for that. 
So, Lord, as we depart from this place, but never from your presence, we know that your grace is going to continue to be with us. You're going to cause your face to shine on each one of us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.